Hi. For those of you who've already joined us, um, we're going to wait a couple of minutes just for some stragglers to come on board. I noticed we already have people from the UK, where I am. I'm in London, from Toronto, from Atlanta, more people from London, yeah. Peru, and Durbanville. Yeah. <laughs> Very importantly. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Excellent. Um, yeah, a few uh, few dolls there coming along for the ride. I haven't seen any yet. And a 14th century castle. <laughs> Kyalicha, excellent. Oh, wow. oh. Oh, oh. Ah, the 14th century castle, Alexandra, <laughs> is in Scotland. Great. Hi, Leonard. <laughs> Do you know Leonard? Difficult. Yeah, not too. <laughs> Can I ask if, if somebody could just respond? Hi, Imran. Very good to see you. Um, can you hear and see the three of us okay? If you could respond in the chat. Yes, oh, excellent. <laughs> okay, good to know. Um, for those of you who've just joined, we are giving the other late joiners a few moments. Um, it reminds me of, I went to Switzerland, to Zurich, to, to interview an arms dealer who lived just outside Zurich in a very strange resort. And you catch the trains from Zurich airport. As I got onto the train, it was, I think, the first time I'd been on a sort of a, a major Swiss train. They made an announcement in what felt like about 10 languages to me, um, one of which I understood, which was the English. And in the English one, I understood that they apologized for the fact that the train had left the station 48 seconds late. Mm. Uh, yes, <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> yeah which sounds to me a little bit like national obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> so we will give, I think a couple, a couple more minutes and we'll start at 25 too. Right. So just, um, we're going to take questions later. So next to the chat, in the column next to the chat, there's a question column. So that might be the place to write them, just so that it doesn't get lost in the chat. And and we're on a bit of a steep learning curve with um, <laughs> Webinar Ninja. So um, yeah, <laughs> be patient, because there might be yeah. some glitches along the way but um yeah we're definitely not uh, black belt no. 
there are now so many of these things it's extraordinary so uh, there's a question already yeah so, um so i am matthew blackman um and i am coming from cape town uh in just near the city um nick where, where yeah i'm you? i'm nick doll and i'm a uh... From near Polesmore, but not in Polesmore. <laughs> <laughs> and my name is Andrew Feinstein, and I am from Cape Town, but I am in London, which is where I live and where I'm joining you from today. Right, I think we should start. Yes. So, good evening, good afternoon. There might even be one or two of you for whom it is good morning. Thank you so much for joining us many of you in south africa but a good number of people from all over the world which is great this is very exciting this is the online launch of a fantastic new book that i've been really fortunate to have had access to bits of it during the last months of of the writing and we'll hear a lot more about that about how it came about and the writing process in a little while and i really have to say that this is an extraordinary book for two reasons um at least the first is that it is thoroughly thoroughly entertaining i have so enjoyed reading it it really is a great great read and to be able to read about history some of which i'm embarrassed to say i didn't know about and enjoy it, I think is really um, great credit to, to the two authors who I'm going to introduce in a moment um, for that, because it, it's, it's a really difficult thing to pull off, um, to be both so informative and as funny as it is, and it really is laugh out loud funny. But the second thing is more serious and as important, and that is that one often hears about the extent and depth of corruption in our democratic era in South Africa. And um, as some of you might know, um, I experienced that at first hand. For those of you who don't, I was an ANC member of parliament um, from 94, first in the provincial legislature, then from 96 in the national parliament until late 2001, when I resigned the night before the ANC were going to remove me from parliament. Um, because the committee on which I was the ranking ANC member, a committee called the Public Accounts Committee, was too zealous, too enthusiastic about our investigation into what is known as the arms deal in South Africa. So this was, in my opinion, the first example of state capture in the country, where we decided in the late part of, of um, President Mandela's presidency, as Thabo Mbeki was taking over presidency of the ANC and a year later of the country, we decided to spend 10 billion American dollars on weapons, weapons that we had absolutely no need of and half of which we've barely used until today. It is conservatively estimated that $350 million of bribes were paid to some of the cabinet ministers involved, to senior officials, including the head of the military, delightfully, um, and to various other protagonists, executives at the state arms company, and of course, a whole lot of insalubrious arms dealers um, and other intermediaries. Um, so I resigned the night before I was going to be removed from parliament by the ANC. Um, but I think that we often forget 
that corruption didn't start in South Africa in 1994 by any means. And I had always thought that it had really taken hold in the late apartheid period. And reading Rogue's Gallery taught me just how ignorant I am. Because it seems to me, as long as there have been colonizers in South Africa, there has been corruption. And the two people who have brought this extraordinary history to us are the two people in front of you. On the left of your screen, Nick Dow, who has a master's in creative writing from the University of Cape Town, and as a well-known journalist has covered everything in his own words from cricket to chameleons. I'm very curious to know in what context he's <laughs> covered chameleons. Um, and Nick says that his favorite stories are always those about people dead or alive, virtuous or villainous. Nick, as he's mentioned, lives in Cape Town with his wife and three daughters. On your right, Matthew Blackman, as a journalist, has written on corruption in South Africa, as well as on art, literature, and history. And Matthew recently completed a PhD in creative and critical writing at the University of East Anglia. And I should just mention that the creative and critical writing course at UEA, where Matthew just got his PhD, has produced many of the world's finest writers for the past couple of generations. It really has had an extraordinary output. Of, of remarkable graduates, and you're about to hear from one more of them. Um, Matthew lives in Cape Town with his dog, who I think we can hear, who indeed, is... Indeed, I was, uh, you know, perfect timing. Um, hold on, let me just mute. <laughs> now this dog that is the cause of the disruption is, according to Matthew, of nameless breed. So we, we don't know whether that is because he is of multiple breeds, something of a hybrid, or whether Matthew is just too embarrassed to tell us the actual breed. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. So what, how are we going to do a little, a little bit of etiquette? Um, I'm going to have a conversation with Matthew and Nick. I'm going to ask them a few quite broad and general questions about the book and some of the things I noted in it. Um, and then we're going to give you an opportunity to ask questions of them as well. And as Nick mentioned, you will see on your screen, there is the chat function. And right next to it, there's another little bubble with a question mark in it. And if you would please put any questions into the questions section um, so that the chat can remain a fairly free associative process as it is at the moment. Um, any other comments that you'd like to make, whatever, please feel free to put in the chat. Um, but questions, let's try, if we can, to keep them organized in the one place so I can keep tabs on them. So <laughs> we are Sorry. going to Sorry. experience nameless noises from the nameless <laughs> dog of nameless it is the dog, I promise. It which is, is fine. Um, um, if anybody asks Matthew a particularly difficult question, we hear growls and various other things. We then won't know if it is still the dog, but we'll, we'll try and figure it out. So, why don't each of you tell us a little bit about the book from your perspective? Tell us a little bit about how it came about, because you also mentioned to me that you've been friends for 20 years. 
And one of the things we obviously want to establish is after the process of writing a book together, I find it difficult enough writing a book on my own. Doing it with anyone else, I just can't imagine. I mean, I would have fights with myself. So um, <laughs> one of the things we obviously want to know is whether your 20-year friendship is still a friendship now that the book is out. Tell us a little bit about how the book came about, why you decided to write it, and a little bit about the process of the writing, given that there were two of you. Um, Matthew, do you want to kick off? Um, so, I mean, our, our friendship is still pretty stable, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, one never knows uh, these things. Um, but uh, um, so, it. I mean, Nick and I, you know, we've known, we lived together in Argentina for a while. And anyway, we've, we've chatted over the years and we... we said a couple of years ago that we should like do something together and that something turned out to be trying to sell rum for some reason i'm not really sure why we thought that we're, we were trying to sort of ride what we thought what might be the next sort of gin wave or anyway that turned out to be an absolute disaster because both of us went to our first rum festival and realized that we were just completely out of our depth that we had no ability as salesmen or no particular, I mean, it wasn't a bad rum, but no particular interest in selling rum that, that sort of, uh, you know, became apparent pretty quickly. Um, and then we, you know, we, we sort of chatted after that and said, well, you know, what, why don't we do something that we can actually, we know that we can do like, you know, we're both writers. Why don't we write something? Um, and you, you know, then we kind of searched for a topic. We, you know, we were a little bit unsure to begin with. We, we went through some ideas about maybe something to do with the Zulu war or deputations, historic deputations of Britain. And, and then all of a sudden, it just sort of like the penny kind of dropped. And it was just, you know, Nick had written something on Willem Adrian von der Stel, and I'd been doing something on Cecil Rhodes. And it was just like, you know, isn't this you know, isn't this about corruption? I mean, you know, there's this history of corruption in this country. This is what we should be writing about, right? I mean, and we we're kind of almost surprised to, you know, that we'd come to this realization so late. And then I think we were sort of then became very worried that somebody was going to beat us, you know, um, to the draw. And we were like, well, maybe there's somebody writing this already, you know, maybe we need to like, uh, you know, get this thing out as quickly as possible. But uh, anyway, so that's kind of how, how it all began. Yeah. Um, and the, actual, Nick process, a, and the actual process, Nick? Yeah, so I just wanted to add that it had also always annoyed us when you hear people kind of saying, like, oh, in another era, Zuma would be in jail, or it was never like this in the old days. And because we kind of knew enough to know that that wasn't true, but we didn't know enough to write the book. So as for the process, so we started it, um, like at the, it was just an idea at the beginning. It wasn't a book. So I think it was probably the end of 2019 that we like each wrote a chapter and we, and then we, we used to actually meet at Rhodes Memorial to chat it about the book, which seemed like just an appropriate place, you know, at the seat of the most corrupt of the bunch. And it's got a good view too. Uh, the coffee is not up to much, but anyway. Um, so yeah, so we, we kind of had about three chapters going, you know, which you submit to a publisher and then they 
They said yes. And that's kind of when lockdown happened. So the book was pretty much written under lockdown. So we didn't we didn't really see each other. I mean, we've seen each other recently in the last couple of weeks, but for most of the time we didn't see each other. We just chatted chatted a lot on the phone, like discussing themes and you know you need to add that. But yeah, it was. And we we so split we the book that, into yeah. yeah we split the book into like the thirteen chapters. So we did six each, and there's an intro and an end. So we took one of those each. So. There's a main author on each chapter, but at the same time, every chapter has really been through the ringer of both of us. You know, so the first reader every single time is the co-author, and we we like take it back and forth until we're happy. And then I think someone else, something else to mention is just the pretty much every chapter we relied on an expert, at least one expert, yeah. to read through it and say yeah, this is okay, or you've got this wrong. Because, like, it, you know, we're not hardcore historians, and we, the book spans 350 years. So we, we didn't know, you know, no, there were, we yeah, got the odd thing were, wrong. There were there were moments where we were like, geez, I just don't know. I mean, certainly there was there's an academic in Australia, um, Kirsten McKenzie, and uh, she put me right on, on a few things to do with, with Lord Charles Somerset, which, you know, I just had got the timeline wrong on on various court cases, um, and you know, so it, it it and it was incredibly confusing because everybody well, then not too many people have written about it, but the way it's been written about, you know, the 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 court cases sort of overlap one another all the time, and then you're never quite sure is when is this happening and why is that happening, and um, so there were you know. She, for example, just was like, "Look, you've got the order wrong. Here's the order." Um, you know, so that it was it was really a, a a valuable kind of process for us to go through. To and you know, we got incredibly interesting feedback from a lot of these experts. On some of the characters in the book, was it difficult to find an expert? Um. Yes, I mean, surprisingly, actually, with some of the later stuff, it was it was more difficult to find. Like the information scandal, we kind of struggled to find somebody who had, you know, recently, or you know, that was their kind of research area. So you know, we kind of relied on, and even the Bruderbond was 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 a little bit kind of tricky. Although, um, yeah, I, I did find um, somebody who'd written on the Bruderbond quite extensively still. Still yeah. alive in New Zealand, and uh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, those were those were the more tricky ones, uh, I think. It's George Young, because they're kind of more famous. In, in some yeah. Next, Sir George Young. Um, there is only one expert on Sir George Young, so I, I knew who he, who he was for a long time. But getting him to actually read the chapter was a bit of a challenge. But he he did, <laughs> and I won't mention him by name. Um, yeah. <laughs> I heard the guy you approached about Zuma was also very problematic. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you, were there any chapters where there were profound disagreements, where you argued and where it was difficult to come to a consensus that this is what the final version of that chapter is going to look like? Um. 
Not really. I don't think, I mean, Nick and I, I don't think we've ever had an argument, right? I mean, not, not like a, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not really sure what, why that is. I, I, I seem to argue with almost everybody who I know, <laughs> except actually maybe Nick and one other person. But, but yeah, there's, um, there's no. I, I, we never had any kind of. There were only moments where we were like, "Look, I think you should include this because it's a theme that I have going in in my other chapters, and you're missing out on, you, you know, like because we." We wanted to take certain themes through through like the idea yeah. of of these people never being arrested and never being put in jail, right? So that's one theme that runs through. And you know, today is quite an interesting day in that um, you know, there was an argument in court about whether Jay-Z should uh, you know be put away for two years or not. Um and um for his contempt of court or yeah. um but so so that was a theme. So we were like, okay, well, how do we, you know, we need to expose this theme. So there were moments where we're like, you know, with these themes that run through, we were like, you know, I want you to focus a little bit more on that idea because it links in with my ideas later yeah. on, that kind of thing. But nothing, nothing, I don't, you yeah. know, I don't think we've ever, we never disagreed about really anything, did we? Not, not that I can No, think. no, I mean, like, nothing major. Like, I, I don't remember anything. Okay. Um, I mean, when you talk about themes, you know, one of the themes that strikes me in the work that I do on corruption in the global arms trade is the issue of impunity. Mm. Um, it's extraordinary. I mean, we did one calculation, 502 violations of UN arms embargoes, all with huge amounts of corruption. Two resulted in any form of legal accountability and one conviction. And the arms dealer who was convicted in that one case laughingly told me when I interviewed him, he said, Oh, yeah, they find me pocket change by comparison mm -hmm. to $158 million profit that I made on the deal. And he said, but it was still an immoral conviction, which does remind <laughs> me of the fact that given what has happened with our former president, Zuma, today, I do just have to say that this is a man who, for someone claiming for, I mean, as far back as when I was still in Parliament, which is 20 years ago now, that he wanted his day in court. He has spent, I mean, tens of millions of rands and an enormous amount of effort trying to avoid appearing in court or any judicial commission of inquiry or anything else. Um, and I think that's another thing. You know, people claim that they are holding... They are holding up the sword of truth, and at some point it all sort of falls down calamitously. But did you observe, as you were doing the research, and the amount of research, the amount of information in the book is extraordinary. It really is. Um, I mean, one has to read it carefully and slowly just to be able to absorb it all and then have the belly aches as well. But were there sort of themes, patterns of corruption that sort of crossed the ages, if you will? I mean, definitely the house is always a theme, right? The, the having the house paid for by the government and, and that is that is the initial theme that, that comes right from Willem Adrian van der Stel right the way through. I don't think there is a single person in the book that doesn't have a house, that isn't paid for by, you know, government funds and that government doesn't at some point or some person in government doesn't query just 
where are these funds? Why are you utilizing these funds? These funds are not for improving your house or building your house or, you know, yeah. and that is the, that, that is the sort of a number one theme. The, the, the other theme I think also is, you know, arms deals are also, you know, a theme that runs through, through the book and, and the army and how the, um, you know, certainly um, Lord Charles Somerset had his son in, in the, the Cape Corps, he made his son the captain of the Cape Corps, and then he, you know, shuffled off huge amounts of money into into this, um, you know, into the military for no reason. There was no, you know, no, they were told that the frontier was as peaceful as it ever been. He then wrote to um, Lord Bathurst in, in London to say, look, there's a terrible trouble on the border. We need arms. And, you know, like, so it, that, that theme is is also always there. And obviously, you know, apartheid people, I mean, I, I think this is the, the link that, that has been made quite often is that, you know, that that arms deal that, that, that you exposed was was an ongoing process from from apartheid in many ways. I mean, there were so many people linked with the old apartheid regime in that deal and you know that that the, the sort of process of, of of arms is always one of of you, you know how okay we're going to sell some arms how are we going to make some money out of it is i mean you I mean you would know more about that in many ways than, than we do but that is definitely a theme but um nick what do you what are the ones uh, yeah i mean the, the themes that that recur throughout the book are all kind of um mentioned in the last chapter on Jacob Zuma, because we framed it as a sort of court case against Jay-Z, saying you're accused of X, Y, Z, are you the first to do it? And then we explain why he's never the first to do any of these crimes. Uh, but just re returning to the house theme, so like, you remember what a, how much of a fuss was kicked up about in Kandla? So in, um, if you go back to 1699, 1700, Governor Willem Adrian van der Stel granted himself Fergelegen, which you've, many of you have probably been to. It's probably still the most gorgeous wine estate in the Cape. Yeah. He basically granted himself like the whole of Somerset West, Strand, Gordon's, like just every all of that area. Then he used um, company slaves, company materials, company seed, company cattle. To establish this just absolutely magnificent farm and house and then to top it all off he sold the produce from the farm back to the company he directed at prices he controlled and this was actually according to the law of the time the governor was not allowed to own land larger than required for a small to like keep two chickens and a cow or something like that so you know and kindler doesn't come close <laughs> that's yeah. extraordinary um with i mean it, it every page is outlandish there is some sort of outlandish behavior and you know we think to ourselves when donald trump gets elected we start saying, oh, this is the era of fake news, as though politicians before Trump never lied. Mm -hmm. I think perhaps there are less consequences for politicians lying today. I mean, I live in a country where the last two prime ministers have been found in contempt of parliament and there have been no consequences whatsoever. It, Ten years ago, that would have been a resigning offence. But, 
it, it really does strike you how all of this nonsense has been going on since time immemorial. In the book for each of you, and Nick, let's start with you. Who do you feel is the most corrupt? Or who, and this might be a different question. So who do you think is the most corrupt? Who is your favorite, or, or maybe the phrase should be least favorite, character? I mean, which character did you most enjoy doing the research on and writing about? So I think we might have the same answer for who the most corrupt of the bunch is. I think you'd be hard pressed to beat Cecil John Rhodes. He really was a piece of work. Uh, that's, that's my take, although Matthew wrote those chapters. And then in terms of the favorite characters, I think the further back we went, the more I enjoyed them. Just because the language, that's actually another part of the book. We use a lot of primary sources. You know, if there's a good letter or accusation from someone, we pop in the whole chunk and, and just let the language speak for itself. Um, I think the one I enjoyed the most was Sir George Young. I mean, before we wrote the book, I'd never heard of him. Uh, very few of you probably will have heard of him. He he only managed, he only remained governor of the Cape for about 18 months, from 1799 to 1800. Bearing in mind that it took about six months to send the letter to tell him that he had been fired. You know, that wasn't, the, 18 months wasn't much of an achievement. And he was just a complete and utter buffoon. He he was he was born into a noble family. He was completely incompetent, perpetually bankrupt and fleeing creditors. He liked dancing, he liked theater, he, and he liked money. Um, and he he did a string of paid uh, sinecures, they call them. It's basically a paid position where you don't have to do any work. Um, you know, sounds quite nice to me. But he did a string of those in the UK, and eventually they just got fed up with him, and they kicked, they sent him out here uh, with a nice salary. And I mean, he he was just such. Mm. such but I mean, a... he all, he also came at that time with, I mean, you know, actually one of my favourite characters because they're, they're obviously good characters in the book as well because there is always the whistleblower, and the whistleblower has existed from you know time immemorial, and yeah. you know so. Um, you know the, the lady anne barnard who you know in 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 south africa you hear lady anne barnard and to be to be fair whenever i heard that name i just thought oh yawn you know like oh you know lady anne barnard could this woman really have done you know like lady you know some sort of noble woman out here but i mean on reading about her she was just an extraordinary person and just and a witty intelligent and then she basically decided that that George Young was, you know, up to no good, and she got seriously involved. But just her kind of turn of phrase, and just how sort of sarcastic and biting, and she was really, I mean, a really incredible woman. And I had, you, you know, just, it's one of those prejudices that I think we all have in South Africa of our own history, you know, oh, you know, it can't be that interesting, like, oh, you know, it's only South Africa, it's only somebody local, you know, that can't be. But 
she really is a, 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 I mean, and I was so glad to, I mean, there was these characters that we met along the way where you become attached to them and you're like, oh my, you know, you want to read more about them. And she's definitely one Yeah, of I've actually got a little quote from her. So yeah, a few of the things that George Young did was he, one of the first things he did was to, to put a wall around the company gardens. He like emptied the entire treasury of the colony to put a wall around the company gardens and stop people from walking in there. So um, I actually want to find that quote. That's quite a good one. Um, she's, so this is Lady Anne Barnard after he'd built the wall. She said, had he torn the Magna Carta of the Cape into a thousand tatters, he could not have put the Dutch into such an alarm. For 150 years, they had enjoyed the privilege of walking under the shade of those oaks. And all ranks of people, the women particularly, were furious. Um, so anyway, then she eventually, basically, she, by sending letters to her friends back in the UK, got him fired. And when he finally received his notice of being fired, oh, she also gave him a great nickname, which was the Lofty Twaddler. She referred to him in all her writing as the Lofty Twaddler. So the Lofty Twaddler has had the lofty tumble I foresaw. He was petrified at the event. He is so conceited of his own abilities that nothing was farther from his expectation than being blamed for anything. You know, so like, why write it in your own words when you've got sort of like that? <laughs> that is absolutely wonderful. She was, she was one of the very early whistleblowers. Yeah. No, and exactly. very, very eloquent to boot. There are not that many women in the book. But there is no. one woman who disguised herself as a man. Mm. And I must say one of my favorite characters in the book. Can you tell us a bit more so, about yeah. Dr. James Barry? James Barry. Yeah, so Dr. James Barry, I mean, really a remarkable a truly remarkable human being. I mean, in, and although, um, you know, he, you know, he lived as a he from for most of his life, um, uh, you know, he was a very strange person in that, like, he was incredibly close, clearly, to Lord Charles Somerset, and Lord Charles Somerset was incredibly corrupt. Um, but, and there is some a few, well, certainly the, the most recent biographers suggested um, that that they were lovers, and there is a good reason for this, and that there was, um, there's there's a there's a was a very rude sign put up about him in, in on Howth Street in Cape Town, and it was famous. It caused a huge uproar in the whole colony over, um, you know, just j j the sign was was. Uh, I, I don't think I can quite uh, sort of uh, the the language is maybe. Uh, a little bit complicated and I won't I won't say it but um so um but he he lived out here um as a doctor um everybody did who met him did think that there was something you know unusual about he was very small and he wore these kind of platform shoes and um he took care of the slaves he was very keen on um, you know taking care of and making sure that the slaves got medical treatment and he and he, um, you know, uh, Lord Charles Somerset at one point in insisted that they, uh, it was one Rix dollar for every time you met with a doctor, but, but Barry uh, charged less. 
Um, and and this was in one of the court cases. This is what's brought up. The, um, they they say, you know, look, you know, Lord Charles Somerset favors his friends, and they're like, when what sense? Well, he allows Jane, you know, Doctor Barry to charge less than he has, you know, he, he's actually made, uh, which is such a strange thing. Anyway, so he, you know, he lived out here. Um, he was the first person to perform a cesarean where both the the child and the mother survived. And they took on his the the baby took on his name, which was James Barry. Um, and actually, that family um, was associated with the Herzogs, who came huh. a bit later. And so James Barry Herzog, who was our prime minister and you know a nationalist right wing prime minister, actually bears the name of James Barry, the doctor, who was who then when he died he. He went and worked in the the Crimea and worked with um, with uh, not Florence Nightingale and um, Florence Nightingale absolutely loathed him. She said he was the most poisonous, hateful creature that she'd ever met. Um, but he was incredibly um, good at what he did, and he put through um, hospital reform in Britain, um, which was like well beyond its 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 time. So really remarkable person and then he had this this guy who he he lived with who was an ex-slave who was a, a a black guy who was a and their photographs of them sort of standing together and there's obviously some kind of speculation as to just what kind of relationship they may have had but um anyway then when he died they discovered that he was a woman and that he had grown up in ireland as a, a, a as a, as a girl and and you know, it seems like he changed his identity so that he could study um, medicine. But obviously, maybe that went a bit further. I mean, you know, who, who knows? I mean, it's all pure speculation. He never, you know, he obviously never, you know, talked about the issue or anything. So, so yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, incredibly, incredible, incredible human being, but also quite bizarre in the context of corruption and that he was friends with actually one of the most corrupt people that we've ever had in our history and didn't seem yeah. to you know didn't register it as a as an issue but uh, there certainly were lots of other people in the colony who did when we talk about someone who is deeply enmeshed in in corruption i mean the person who really struck me in the book and surprised me to some extent um was the bruderbonder and you know to be honest working on on global corruption the Bruderbond just appears more and more to me like an organized criminal enterprise mm -hmm. as much as, as the holder of an ideology and a, and a nationalism. But the role that Nico Diedrichs played, you know, yeah. I saw Diedrichs as this sort of lowish level, insignificant politician. I mean, I know he becomes president at a point in our history, and but at that point, the presidency is, is, is largely symbolic. But my goodness, I couldn't believe the role that Diedrichs had played in myriad scandals. Yeah. No, I mean, he, again, I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't know much about him. He, I, I, what I knew about him was that he seemed like the slightly supercilious, you know, man, you know, who appeared in photographs in the background yeah. of things, you know, like, um, but yeah. no, I mean, he really um, was in Machiavellian in many ways. And he, you know, like was really one of the core 
you, you know, the Bruderbornt in the 1920s was a bit kind of directionless, but with him and um, Pete Mayer and, and Hendrik Favut, the three of them kind of formed this kind of triumvirate. And they, you know, I mean, they, you know, through the probably from about the late 50s into the 60s, really kind of the three of them were in control of South Africa on a, on a quite sinister and extraordinary level. Yeah. We've had some really great questions. I have loads more questions I want to ask you, but I think let's get to some of the brilliant questions that have been asked. Um, one is, and it comes back to the issue that you touched on, Nick, which is about using so many primary sources. And Kelly asks, what sources did you use and find particularly valuable when researching the characters in the book? And when you talk about that and the use of so much primary source material, which is unusual in a book of this sort, can you also say something about the photos? Because the photos are just phenomenal. And well, I mean, the writing really brings these characters to life because of course I was first, I just was receiving writing from you. And now mm. seeing the photographs as well, it adds a whole nother layer that's wonderful. And that's definitely Nick's doing. Yeah, I, I was got a bit relentless on the, <laughs> and think oh, more and more photos to just find out. I want to see what this guy looked like. Um, so, I mean, the sources, because we cover such a range, you can't really use, you know, you're not looking at one source for the book. You're looking at sort of five to 10 books per chapter. So, I mean, the early stuff, there are two guys who did a lot of writing about the early eras and the guy called George McCall Thiel, who was actually born in Canada and another guy, what was Corey's Corey, first name, Matthew? B.E. Corey is always... B.E. E. Corey. So we used, George, yeah. we used them a lot um, for, the, for the first few chapters. And then um, you just kind of, you know, you read a general history and then you see what books in the footnotes all the time. And then you find that. And then you look there and you find where the source is coming from and you find that. Um, and obviously locked on made it a bit challenging to find some of the books so like we you know i probably would have taken more books out of the library but i just ended up buying them so now i've got them <laughs> although there was one book where i just could not get hold of this book and i phoned i found that there was a copy in the mossel bay library and i phoned them and i said you know i need I just need pages 231 to 247 or whatever. I reckon within 15 minutes I had the scan in my inbox. So I can't remember that librarian's name, but she really does. She really Phenomenal. deserves that dimension. Yeah. And then the pictures. So I mean, there's a bit on the internet, but like maybe 10%. Then we we went to the Cape Archives quite a lot, and that's a great place. And we we found some gems. Um, and then we've got to mention Zabeth in Pretoria. Mm -hmm. I found a woman in Pretoria who basically went to the archives, I don't know how many times, on our behalf. Yeah. And, and apparently the Pretoria archives are not quite as jacked as the Cape archives. Mm -hmm. So she would, she would go with her camera and they'd basically give her a shoebox of photos. And she'd just shuffle through them and think, is this a guy Nick and Matthew are writing about? And if she thought there was even a sort of 30% chance we were writing about him, she'd take the picture. So 
we've got we literally sifted through thousands of pictures to find um the ones that are in the book yeah and i mean yeah. it was quite difficult finding Diedrichs, right we um well, uh, martin velt sent you Ma that yeah yeah well martin velt actually had a folder on because he did the original um investigation into Diedrichs back in the 70s so he then i i went just i can't there must have been a sort of hiatus in lockdown at some point and i went to his his house and he just handed me this like 25 files of stuff that was just like here's all of the stuff that i think is about Diedrichs, and i just you know there just was just notes and you know a lot of it written in afrikaans which i was you know you know going with google translate all the time to try and work out what wait, what does that word mean um but and then there were these the, an amazing photographs of Diedrichs pouring gold and yeah and but um there, there were um, but that's yeah with these kind of what wow. looked like quite sort of sinister gangster glasses on which um uh, his nickname was dr gold yeah so we found exactly. we found a picture of him pouring gold and a picture of him he actually minted the very first kruger rand there's yeah. a picture of him sort of pressing this big machine strong yeah. my goodness Okay. I was prepared to give up on the pictures, but but Nick was just like, you know, no, no, we needed it. I'd be like, oh, we can't find a picture. Just leave it, you know, like, and Nick was like, no, Sabbath, we'll find one. <laughs> Some of the questions that have been asked are of the more historical stuff. So I'm going to almost go from that. And then there's a great question about the info scandal and then some that have contemporary relevance that, that I'd like you to answer, because I think there are obviously people who'd like to get a sense of what the contemporary relevance is. And um, Ruth asks that statues of a number of the figures that you're talking about are being pulled down. Was that in any way an incentive to write the book? So, I mean, I think for me, definitely, you know, I, I got into Rhodes, the, the issue of round roads, really with Rhodes Must Fall. And I, you know, I must say, I was a member of the SRC in 1996, and you know, we walked past roads every day. But you know, nobody even really—I didn't. I must say, I barely even thought about the, you know, the issue, the issues that may lie there. You know, but roads must fall. Definitely, I just thought, look, I, I actually need to know more about roads. I don't know. I don't know enough about him. And then I found this extraordinary, you know, book by Olive Schreiner called Trooper Peter Halkett of Mashonaland which is really a, a kind of piece of, uh, of whistleblowing in many ways in the form of a novel. Um, and, you know, that, that then I read this book and I was, you know, then convinced that, you know, that absolutely that statue had to be sort of taken down and, and, and you know, got rid of. And, you know, but I, I guess I hadn't really, you know, I don't, as when South Africans do, you just, well, certainly, in, you know, up until maybe 2015, you just sort of walk past these things as, just strange objects yeah. in a, in a, you, you know, and don't really think of of how complicated they they are and why they're still there and you know I mean that, but um, yeah. So for for me, yeah. the the statues were definitely my pathway really into into the book. I guess. Yeah, for me, I I don't think I I began the book wanting to rip down statues, but now. Matthew will send me like a Google pin to like a Diedrich Street in Sasselberg, and I get this like urge to go and rip it out of the ground. So um, 
um, yeah, maybe it's 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 an acquired taste. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, it is it is uh, I mean it is kind of remarkable how how slow this kind of process is and, yeah. and, I, and maybe we are I don't maybe South Africans are have been content just to sort of forget and drift along and, and not really sort of register what's what's well, I, I do think at some level that that sort of amnesia is encouraged it was obviously mm. encouraged under apartheid um the information scandal being the most obvious thing um but even in the new democratic order there are all sorts of things you know the the inquiry into the assassination of of the swedish prime minister um olaf Palmer, yeah. you know the way in which both the national party but also the anc behaved in resisting attempts during the trc time to, to try and dig deeper and find out more whether there was a South African connection, which I happen to think there was, it really surprised me. And I, yeah. I do, I mean, I think the powerful are extremely fond of amnesia mm. because it suits them for obvious reasons. But on that, um, Jack, and this might be a very old friend of mine from Milton Keynes in London, formerly from, New from Newlands in Cape Town, many, many decades ago, Jack Leibovitz. And first of all, says thank you for the very interesting book and asks to what extent it can be said that the information scandal was a key staging post in the end of apartheid, the beginning of the end for the National Party. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in in some ways, yes. I think I think that, that what came out of of that scandal did shock your local national party supporter. I think it was a kind of moment where they had to. A lot of people did think, "Hold on, what has actually been going on here? Like, how has so much kind of wool been pulled over our eyes?" You know, and um, I, I mean, it definitely you know was a moment for reflection and I, I think it did did shock people but it's again amazing how it just then kind of drifted out of consciousness i mean you know i mean what is kind of quite interesting is how the national party tried to deal with that initially they were like okay let's put a lid on it you know let's not let it get out there then it did then there's this um, judge judge mustard who you know was actually a national party supporter he does this commission of inquiry into um, uh, exchange control, bizarrely, and stumbles into this whole issue to do with what Eshel Rudy and Louis Late and all of these guys are up to, like qu quite seemingly by accident. Yeah. Um, and then he is just like, I'm not going to let this go. This is, not, you know, I'm, and he really, in many ways, kind of drove it and, you know, went at a meeting with P.W. Boerta and Boerta said, you know, you apparently just read in the riot act saying, you know, you were, you will not expose this. And he said, well, just watch me. I'm, I'm going to call the media, you know, conference and, and I'm going to do it. And he did, which, um, and I think that did really, and then they went into some kind of, you know, then they didn't really know what to do. I guess they just oh. were like, okay, right. It's out. Then they tried to fudge it for a while. And then they suddenly realized that actually accountability was being, sort of demanded of them and then they had another um commission of inquiry so they had two commissions of inquiry into the one found absolutely nothing yeah. and then when people objected then they were like okay well let's have another let's have another commission of inquiry where we do find some people but let's 
you know, let's let's get, you know, then we'll bring Rudy over from because he was living in France. We'll bring him over. We'll have a kind of little bit of a kind of show trial. And he did actually get um, six years, you know, in his initial judgment, six years in jail. But, you know, that was overturned by the appeal court, um, you know, and then he was allowed to sort of wander off with his. Yeah. You know, supposedly it's millions, but I think it was it, it was definitely a moment for for South Africa. I mean, uh, whether it changed public opinion to the extent of the change, I think there were other forces, uh, uh, you know, in, in the process. Of yeah, the I think I think the, the ANC and the, what was going on in the rest yeah, of the world and yeah. all of that had had an. But it but it was a, it was a moment where I think many many national party supporters did suddenly realise that there was something quite you know, strange going on and that yeah. their government wasn't just a good bunch of Christian national, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, I think that it, in my opinion, it, it maybe just punctured the bubble a bit for the first time. And then all those other factors, the defeats at Kudo Kunavale in, in Angola, mm -hmm. the banks um, making the debt so much more expensive which started to impact on the quality of life of white South Africans. And of course, the ungovernability of the townships through the 80s wasn't that much. UDF and all of that. Yeah. Absolutely. I think all of those things, and of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's a very interesting point that Jack makes. There's a lot of interest about, um, both in the chat and in the questions, about what it means to say that corruption has been around a long time. And Tebo asks specifically, you highlight the fact that corruption didn't start after 94. Does this mean that the new government cannot be called out on corruption? Because it's always been very upsetting to hear some ANC ministers saying that the Nats did that too, if not worse. Surely we need to start somewhere, otherwise it won't end. I mean, I, no, I, I, I don't think it means that at all. I, I don't think it means that it excuses what's going on now. It just provides some context. I yeah. think on on... Towards the end of the book, we actually unearthed a document that the ANC put out in, in the final throes of apartheid in 1992, where they said, I wish I could, here we go. So yeah, in 1992, after the Picard Commission had found just like widespread, like misappropriation of funds. Yeah. So it says, um, yeah, so they said that basically this commission had found a cesspool of corruption that extends far beyond the central apartheid state to Bantistan's regional and local government, blah, blah, blah. And they demanded the setting up of an independent commission into corruption and state expenditure, the dismissal where appropriate prosecution of all ministers and officials implicated in the misappropriation of public funds, the seizure of assets of those implicated in the theft of public funds, um, the reallocation of public funds that had been misspent, for example, the five billion allocated to covert projects should be reallocated to compensate victims of the violence and to finance reconstruction. So yeah, this was the ANC in 1992 calling out the Nats, but I mean, it could really be written today about the ANC. So yeah, I, I don't think it excuses anything. I mean, I, th I think what it does show is how systemic corruption is, 
how it is a part of the political system, always has been, and, and some more pessimistic might all argue always will be. But for me, it just makes it more important to fight corruption in the moment that we find ourselves in. Because if we don't, the rogues gallery in 50 years time is going to ask the question, well, why didn't these people land up in jail? Mm. Because so many of the characters you identify in the book, so many of the rogues, and somebody asks, which would be good to hear about as well, how did you identify the rogues for the book? How, what were the criteria? But so many of them, as we've said, have been fated in statues, countries named after them that in many instances lived their legacies in awful ways. Um, and should actually have been in jail. And so often mm. the powerful, when we look back in history, should have been in jail in their time. We are now in a time when we can put them in jail. And you know, the, the, the Archbishop of Cape Town a few months ago spoke about wanting, I think it was 2020, let's make it 2021, the year of the orange overalls. And we have mm. you know, a former president goes on trial on the 17th of May. Now, that wouldn't have happened, I don't think, pre-1994, and it's not good enough that it's only one person at this point, but it is a start. But, um, what, I mean, the two related questions about the road. So if you want to go back to that. I, you, I mean, I, I sort of yeah. would be interested to, to know from, from you in, in, in some ways, I mean, you know, why, why is it that, I mean, obviously there's always a political element to it and, and that, I mean, yeah. just looking at the events of today, it seems like certain judges, you know, are of course. frightened of what it might mean to send Zuma to jail. Like, what will that politically, you know, result in? Will there be, you know, rioting and, you know, yeah. assassinations or whatever the case is. I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, I think that's that, that's quite often the fear of like, say Absolutely. if we do put this popular figure into into jail, like what what are the what what are the social ramifications yeah. of that? I think judges are always, you know, on the on the whole, I mean, judges are always not only measuring justice there, they also, you know, measuring the the, the public yeah, sentiment in, in, yeah. in some instances they're playing the political game and we've seen instances mm. you know you spoke about the commissions of inquiry of course in the information scandal they would have appointed a judge who would have blocked his ears closed his eyes and said nothing mm. and then there was enough of a public outcry that they had to go for a second one i mean to be very specific, we had the Sariti Commission of Inquiry in this country, which the North Gauteng High Court, to its credit, set aside completely mm -hmm. because it was absolutely clear that uh, the judges had not done their job and that they were avoiding a political problem, um, mm -hmm. which was that there was so much evidence of corruption and Jacob Zuma had been forced by the Constitutional Court to appoint the Commission of Inquiry, and he appointed a friendly judge, and it was clear between them, whether explicit or not, that he would find no corruption in the arms deal. And I experienced that personally. I mean, we sent thousands and thousands of pages of evidentiary documents that he then said we weren't allowed to submit because we were not the authors of the documents. And, you know, I can see this in parts of your book. I can actually see this sort of behavior. I think it's our responsibility as citizens 
I think that we have, and as you've shown us, we've always had in this country, an intertwining of political and, and economic interests, if you will, business and politics, mm -hmm. and that we as citizens have a responsibility to ensure that our political leaders are held to account and that we don't vote for them unless they are. The biggest danger, I believe, in the Jacob Zuma case is that the ANC will look for a political solution for the reasons that you talk about. And I think a far more important lesson for our democracy and for this country will be a former president of the country who I believe, and I'm giving evidence against him as a state witness, who I believe has been corrupted. His financial advisor was found guilty of corrupting him. Mm -hmm. um, and for someone like that to actually go to jail sends an extraordinary message to the country and I think could have huge impact on our democracy and the transparency and accountability of that democracy going forward. Um, I mean, as a kind of a, a sort of test case for a lot of this, I think there's a, there's a guy in the book called James Rose Innes, who's a really interesting character because he's another kind of whistleblower character who comes up and he, you know, you know, he is in many ways politically aligned to Rhodes, but he yeah. realized it was quite soon on that Rhodes is deeply and inherently corrupt and yeah. you know he does his bit to you know expose the corruption and but and and he's often in letters to him and and he was very good friends with um uh john tengo jabavu and and the the eastern cape um you know politics and and the, the vote in in the eastern cape so you know he's getting all these letters from various people who are trying to encourage him to start his own political party yeah. But he knows that, you know, there is just no power behind, you know, like he is a sort of old fashioned kind of classic liberal, you know, and he knows that, you know, if I really make a break for it and call people out and, you know, and then try and gain popular support, there is no popular support for me. Like, you know, I will become marginalized. And, you know, what would the point of that be? Because I'm doing my little bits and pieces here. You know, it's yeah. that weird moment and i think he's but you know he eventually becomes our chief justice in in the, in the union and you know he's widely regarded as one of the great sort of chief justices of our time but he is a guy who knows that he can't ever really pop his head out of you know out of the trench because yeah. it will be shot off so it, it does lead to the question and it's asked in, in two of the questions you know it's about how did you what defined a rogue to get included in the book how many people did you have to sift through to come down to the group that you have? And there's a very interesting um, question from Maya Tao who asks, do you think South Africans are all rogues as part of a legacy of stolen land and all born from criminality where being rogue is modified or enhanced dependent on luck or misfortune? So the rogue becomes part of an ongoing national identity. I mean, I think there are, you know, you look at somebody like Louis Late, right? Louis Late was as corrupt as as they come. I mean, you know, he took government money. He was meant to put it somewhere else. He put it into his own business, blah, blah, blah. You know, people, you spoke to the vast majority of, you know, white South Africans about Louis Late in the 1990s. Everybody was, oh, what a, what a good oak, man. Yes, that's Louis Late, eh? You know, you know what I mean? There's this... There's this, we actually quite like 
people or seemingly or they yeah. have a sort, sort of aura around them that we excuse this extraordinary behavior but but in saying that i mean there always are people who've stood up against them they've, you know, they've been good guys in every chapter so yeah. that that is yeah a little glimmer of hope and as as for how um how we chose who to include uh, if you look at the cover so not everyone made it onto the cover but <laughs> nine, nine of the 13 are yeah. on the cover so i mean a few of them had to be there particularly the guys in the middle so you've got paul kruger cecil rhodes and, and jacob zuma although paul kruger wasn't there in the beginning yeah? mm. hmm. no, he yeah. got added a bit later um then lord you know these two british um nincompoops um Lord Charles Somerset, we found fairly early on because he was here for quite a while. Um, so we, we kind of knew that he'd been up to mischief. But this this chap, Sir, uh, sorry, the oh, screen's yeah, backwards. The screen. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, Sir George Young, he, I literally got one of those old um, history books of South Africa, a, a PDF version. And I just searched for the word corrupt and then there was this chapter where it came up like 20 times. So I was like, oh, what's this about? And that's how we found this guy. And I mean, he's he's probably one of the funniest characters in the book. Um, I think the other way that we chose the rogues is we did try to be democratic. So we, we didn't want to just, we really wanted to make the point that it doesn't know, like, corruption doesn't know, like, race or skin color or language or religion or anything it's just yeah you either are or you aren't and it, and it's been around for a long time so i mean we didn't that was a, it was a consideration but we didn't have to like work too hard to get a demographic mix we mm. we didn't manage to find any women to put on the cover and i think that speaks to like yeah. sort of our dynamics there were quite a few female whistleblowers however mm. mm -hmm. Like at least three that I can think of. Well, so there's Lady Anne Barnard, Olive Schreiner, in many ways was a whistleblower, and and mm. there's this extraordinary person in the information scandal who nobody knows who she was. She's known as Myrtle, um, and everybody thought up until quite recently that she was a man, but it turned out she was. Um, um, Alistair Sparks let the cat out of the bag and said it was a, a woman, and but nobody knows i mean i have my theories but apparently according to penguin i'm not allowed to mention my theories due to liable action so i won't mention my theories. that was maybe the closest we had to having an argument yeah. oh really <laughs> matthew wanted his theories in yeah. i mean it was, very, it was completely pure speculation like no 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 actual hard evidence at all just and like I know, you know, yeah. I know all about that. There is actually a question, and it's a question that often comes up um, when talking about corruption, and especially when writing about corruption. Whether there are people or institutions mentioned in your book who have threatened to sue you, or whether during the writing process there were any threats. Well, most no, of them are dead, yet. so, so yeah. not, not yet. I mean, I, I think there, I, I, there is definitely potential for a, a couple to to come out of the woodwork, and um, we did have yeah, a lawyer I mean, read it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure several, you did several times, but yeah. not not as yet. But I, I feel like, I mean, there, there's definitely one or two. I don't want to mention names because then, yeah, you know, uh, that's sort of yeah. uh, 
springing on the <laughs> on the the gale that one's trying to avoid. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, they, I, I guess there is potential, but you, you know, the lawyers were pretty strict with us, and you know, everything had to have an alleged and a and a you know. Um, yeah, there was so, an odd so thing, odd there. funny bit that we had to take out, but luckily there's enough left. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, luckily for, for us as writers and researchers, unluckily for our society, yeah. Uh, yeah. There, is so, there is so much that is in the public domain that one can source and reference um, that it, 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 it really is quite, quite disturbing. Let, let's go back for a moment before we end. Let's go back for a moment. Um, there's a very early question that I'm going to leave for the end because it, it to some extent, reflects on the future. But we've been asked two questions. What, what are the sort of the policies? What, how can we limit corruption in the future? If you have any thoughts on that, having now written the book, and in addition to which, um, Nicholas asks, are the corruptions you write about all the same corruptions, or is each instance of corruption different because of the time and context? And it comes back to some of the issues we've discussed about patterns, and, um, but it is an interesting point. Nick, do you want to kick off there? So with that second question, yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think it's a bit of both. So there are definitely similarities across you know, there are some facts that are present in every single chapter, you know, like this concept of paying more for something you either paying too much for something you either don't need or even better doesn't actually exist. It is, is a core kind of attribute of corruption, um, you know, like not telling the truth. That's pretty kind of consistent across the, the ages of these guys. Right. Um, the houses, as Matthew mentioned. Um, but obviously they do, I don't know that there's like a distinction between old and modern corruption per se, but like there are different kinds of character in the book. You know, you get some of them that are kind of, I think like Paul Kruger or Katie Matanzima in the trans sky. They're not like rotten to the core, but they're in a system that is. So they get swept along and and like Paul Kruger didn't benefit immensely from corruption. I mean, he benefited a bit, you know, he, it's not like he got nothing out of it, but his, the system he presided over and the system that he fought to protect, like he implemented this monopolies concessions policy and he just insisted that it must remain. And that system just was extremely fertile ground for corruption. Mm. So yeah, and you he, get and he knew about. I mean, you know, there were several. Well, at least one person who was, you know, tried and went to jail, and and Kruger yeah. knocked on the door of the prosecutor and arrived at sort of three in the morning to to sort of talk to the prosecutor to say, you know, no, 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 Matt, he shouldn't be yeah. going to jail, you know, like, and he was like, look, it's yeah. not up to me, it's it's the judge that decides on this. But so you know, it is, um, it is. You know, like, and admittedly, I think in, in many ways, I think Nick, when Nick, who wrote the chapter on Kruger, you, you know, like, we felt slightly, you know, strange about, because Kruger wasn't, you know, he wasn't really in it for his own, you, you, you know, like, he, he didn't really have any need for money in his 
way of living and but he had his house that was bought for him and he you know he he lived uh, you know uh, he sold of, uh, a he, he sold a number of farms at a nice profit thanks to his connections and i mean yeah. he it's not like he wasn't corrupt but he wasn't the worst of the bunch he wasn't only in it for i mean he was in it for some other extraordinary odd things that many of us would find you know quite sort of distasteful but you know he wasn't um he wasn't in it for the for the money he yeah it, it wasn't like um having gone through this journey of researching and writing this incredible book do you have any thoughts any views or was this matthew what you're not allowed to say according <laughs> to the publisher about ways in which we could address corruption i mean in in south africa i mean i think our you, you know we we need we need political reform here, like very badly. We need our parliament to be accountable in some manner. I mean, our parliament is just, it's unaccountable. Like yeah. there, uh, the, the system that we have in place seemed like a good idea at the time and proportional representation. We need some form of hybrid. We need members of parliament, I guess maybe in when you kind of started out with a, with a sense of independence, like they're independent from, from the party and um well not independent but but like have your own mind i think we definitely need you know that is one thing that strikes me as you know even even with the judiciary roads, there, as well there was, yeah i mean even with roads there were a group of people around who were responsible to their constituents and they fought for their constituents desires and needs and and particularly in the eastern cape like James Rosinus and a lot of those guys like Merriman who were there had been voted in in many ways mm -hmm. with with the with um, at least a proportion of the black vote had voted for them and they felt a responsibility to you know to try and moderate the kind of racist legislation that that Rhodes was pushing through and I don't know if we you know our parliament we just don't have that sense of you go I mean I've been to parliament a couple of times and it's just you know people are sleeping on the benches and nobody's there and i mean i know this is true of all parliaments no, no. You know, but yeah. as it was before 94 and i think it, it's tragic that it continued after 94. i think the tragedy for me is how quickly our new democracy adopted the very tawdry norms that operate around the world mm -hmm. um that that for me was the tragedy but nick do you have any thoughts on what, what we, we can do to i mean i think you know political reform and i think judiciary reform which does seem to be happening i mean you know the only well not the only but quite a few of the glimmers of hope in the book come from judges yeah. actually saying i'm not going to be a yes man mm. and and whenever that happens um you have a chance to to fight corruption so I mean, I, I guess there's also the argument for like, you know, the, you know, the whole people need to stop uh, bribing traffic officers and that kind of thing. But that's not yeah, something I mean, we really went into uh, in the book. But, it, yeah. it, you know, if, it, if it's the trickle down thing. But it yeah. is account accountability is, 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 you know, and I think we, particularly South Africa, we live in a very kind of unaccountable society. You know, and nobody, yeah. you know, we need to instill those kinds of, you know, for want of a better term, values of, you know, and, unless we want to write a sequel, in which case we should just 
Well, I'm coming to, but before that, Philip has asked, you know, reflecting on the book, do you believe that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Great men are always, almost always bad men. I I would like there to be some hope, Nick. Hey, I mean, there, there <laughs> are, you know, I, it is, it does tend to. It wasn't like as easy as we make it sound to find these characters. Mm. There, there were guys who we, who we couldn't find enough to write a chapter about, you know. I don't Which think there's anyone we found that had absolutely nothing on them. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. So I think there's a extreme likelihood of power to corrupt. But yep. there are a few good people who seem to fight it. Mm. And, yeah. and there are. That's my feeling. Okay, I think I think that's great. I think your your insights as a consequence of the book are are really important. I mean, interestingly, Vaclav Havel, who of course was was a dissident playwright in mm. Czechoslovakia um, before the collapse of the Iron Curtain, um, and then very surprisingly to himself, amongst others, became um, the first president of post-communist Czechoslovakia and now the Czech Republic. He wrote a brilliant little book called Summer Meditations about the corruptions of power. And I won't go into it in detail, but it is really worth reading. But in another book, he writes how politics should be the domain of the most moral amongst us, but unfortunately seems to attract the most immoral amongst us. And there is something about the sorts of material advantage one can gain from power. And I think the intersections of business and politics, which have really come to the fore in the period sort of from the late 70s and early 80s onwards, have probably made the situation worse. Mm. And in South Africa... No, I don't know about that, Andrew. I'm like Paul <laughs> Kruger, like... And Paul Kruger was famous for like basically being friends with this bunch of businessmen. And so there was a first Volksrat, a second Volksrat, the, 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 the Dutch word for parliament. And everyone talked about the fact that the third Volksrat was actually much more influential. And that was just the guys that he had coffee with, the entrepreneurs he had speaking, coffee with. So, yeah. Speaking the advice given to Matthew by your publisher, for whom I have great respect, and my yeah. publisher in the UK, I'm not going to mention any names, but there are certain former British prime ministers and American presidents whose bank balances you should have a look at. Mm -hmm. The money that they made after leaving office, and when I say money, it's mm -hmm. the sort of money that I very much doubt anybody on this webinar has ever contemplated. Mm -hmm. Most of it, most of it they received after leaving office, but that doesn't make it less corrupt when it is in return for things they did while they were in office. Mm -hmm. And I'm but, talking on a, on a truly gargantuan scale, although in relative terms, you might be quite right that at the time and context in which you were talking, those sorts of things might actually have been of a similar scale. But mm. how do you how do you stop? I mean, you know, even in, in the UK, there have been instances of this COVID kind of corruption and you know, companies 
um, who get tenders to for face masks. Actually, one called Ayanda, which I suddenly was like, <laughs> wait a minute, that's a South African name. And then it was like, oh, they actually are South Africans. Oh, great. Oh, well, wonderful that we're sort of continuing. Yeah. You know, we take the torch somewhere else. But um, you know, I mean, that that there seems to be a clear case, at least, uh, you know, um, of prima facie kind of evidence that there's some. But nothing seems to happen. It just seems to have been laughed off. And oh well, you know. Well, law, law, law enforcement agencies aren't looking into them. And somebody did suggest and ask whether Boris Johnson will be featured in a future edition of Rogue Gallery, which <laughs> leads to another question that was asked very, very early on, as we started by Leonard, um, who said, would it make sense at some point of a sequel to Rogue's Gallery which focuses on the contemporary international links to corruption in South Africa. And I didn't mention the company BAE Systems. Um, <laughs> Leonard also says, I have read Rogue's Gallery and thoroughly enjoyed it. Gobbled mm. it up Thanks. in two days. Thanks, Leonard. So um, let's, let's sort of segue much so as corruption did <laughs> from the late apartheid era into our democratic era into, I mean, do you see in future, and I know the book's just come out, hmm. but can you imagine future editions where might be some prominent members of fairly large political parties who have been possibly even convicted by then, hmm. um, adding chapters about certain people, looking at some other dimensions? Is, th is this something that either or both of you feel committed to continuing to work on? Nick has I think ideas about this. This may be our, well, I think, our sort of equivalent. I think of the COVID, COVID corruption stuff, I'd be keen to write about at some point, you know, once the dust is settled. And that's, you know, what's going on right now. Yeah. Um, and the international connections, I think, was part of the question. I mean, yeah. we definitely thought about, you know, there's a lot of corruption mm. in the world. So it could be corruption related to South Africa, or it could just be... Well, I mean, there's uh, corruption in Africa or, or in the world, or I mean, there's a whole book about corruption between South Africa and Israel, mm -hmm. you know. So, and I'm and India, you know, Taiwan, and there's you know, so yeah, like, but certainly, I mean, you know, during the 70s and 80s, there was a hell of a lot of um, you, you know, like uh, sanctions, sanctions busting, and and all of that, and around arms deals as well so there's definitely i mean you know the, this is a kind of you, you know it's it's a it's a you know source that never stops giving in, in many ways but uh i mean we actually are writing another book but not on we're writing about the sort of history of elections in south africa but oh, wow. um but um yeah so the next corruption i think we've got to kind of take a break my next door neighbor told me that I that that maybe I've sort of taken on too much of a sort of <laughs> negative, uh, um, you know, over particularly over COVID and then doing all of this work on corruption is doesn't lead one to a sort of positive state of mind at the end of it all. But you probably know about this, Andrew. You I, like reading things and you're just looking for how much was the bribe? How much was the bribe? And it's like... I could, uh, my daughter is 18 saying to me, you know, I wonder if you did something different if you wouldn't be such a grumpy old man. <laughs> and I mean, there might, there might be something in that. But yeah. it is my feeling that this is an incredibly important book. It's incredibly important work. 
that you are doing. There are references in the questions that we're not going to have time to get to about Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew. Interestingly, there's stuff emerging now that suggests it wasn't quite as free of corruption as, as we maybe thought in the early years of, of the development of the city-state of Singapore. Um, and in terms of overcoming, I, I agree with you entirely. I think the judiciary has a crucial role to play. I think because our politics, and I say our, not in meaning South Africa, but globally, are in such a corrupted state at mm -hmm. the moment um, that we need to look to the creation of independent entities in countries that have guaranteed budgets um, and that can investigate corruption without fear or favor. Because going back to the COVID corruption, Nick, you were mentioning in the United Kingdom situation, there is something here, that a brilliant book by a chap called Owen Jones called The Establishment showed that there are certain crimes that never get investigated in the mm. United Kingdom because there is something called the establishment. Mm. And it reaches into every element of those levels of life in this country. And we're seeing it in a remarkable way now. But I'm going to end before I conclude by the final question, which comes from Philip, asking whether either of you have been offered a bribe. Um, I, I don't yeah. think I'm in a position of sufficient power <laughs> to ever be offered one. I, I, I'd be more likely to have to give one. Um, I've definitely been asked to keep quiet, and I mean, not not I, I, not not overtly. I mean, when I used to uh, um, investigate the Department of Arts and Culture, it was definitely a sense of like um, you know. If you just stop pressurizing us, you know, life yeah. could be kind of easier for you. Kind of, you know, there was definitely that kind of intimation, but not. There was n never any, uh, uh, you know, a, a, you know, an, a, a sort of brown envelope. You know, I was was kind of rather hoping there, there there would be at some point. You know, it would have made me feel like, oh, actually getting to these guys. But um, you know, no, they they're just kind of. It does show the temptation of power. When I was only in the Gauteng Provincial Legislature, so not very powerful at all, I was responsible for introducing new gambling legislation. And I was offered an enormous number of bribes, including mm. a gentleman who passed a piece of paper across my desk to me in my office mm. and said, just put details of your Swiss bank account down there. And mm. I said, what? And he said, yeah, yeah, just put the details. And I said, why? And he said, because there'll be a million dollars in that account on Monday morning. This was on a Thursday afternoon. Mm. <laughs> and of course, my, you know, I was so naive and ignorant. I was very young then. And I sort of said to him, well, I barely have a South African bank account, let alone a Swiss <laughs> one. I don't have much money. Um, and he wanted a gambling license. Mm. There's actually quite a lot of that in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then one, one particular South African who I think most of our audience can guess who we're talking about comes up quite a lot <laughs> but, but I, I guess you know that's the that's the pro you know once you've taken your first bribe then it comes easy yeah yeah i actually must mention before we leave okay so what, why don't you, you, you have a final word before we close so I, I need to to thank love books and the book lounge for for helping us with this um webinar they've been incredible and you guys can anybody who's listening can um 
get signed copies there. I should have mentioned that at the beginning and I completely failed to do that. So that I was supposed my... to mention that at the beginning, but had noted it for the end, but you've done me the service. Yes. But any John, final... then... Yeah, Nick? I, I'd just like to thank Andrew. I mean, he's been with us mm. for quite a lot of the process. I mean, not every day, but he's he's been reading the book and giving feedback and he this whole event was kind of at his urging. He said, you know, you've got to have a launch. Don't, <laughs> don't worry about COVID. You've got to do something and I'll host it. So, I mean, yeah, huge thank you. It's, yeah, it's been really enjoyable and your questions were great. And yeah, I mean, just thanks a lot, Andrew. To, to, yes, you know, thank you so I just, much. I just got your email address for, I, I think it was my aunt knows your sister or something. Oh my goodness. Uh, I think. Yeah, got it right. Is your sister in Somerset West? No, she has connections to Somerset West. Okay. So anyway, anyway, so I, you know, I just emailed you out of the blue, and you you agreed to well to help us, and you didn't know. In thanking, both, in thanking both of you, not just for this event, but more importantly for the book. Let me just say what a pleasure it was when I first found out about the book, and you sent me some of the pages. I was delighted to see that this was being written. I would like to reiterate the thanks to the two wonderful bookshops, which deserve all of your support, Love Books and the Book Lounge, and to the publisher, who we should not forget, because otherwise mm -hmm. the book wouldn't be there. But also thank you to all of you who joined us. We had a, a, a great attendance and some absolutely wonderful and thought-provoking questions. And finally, it just leaves me to say, please go and buy your copy of the book. And as importantly, tell family and friends about this book. It not only is a highly entertaining read, as I've said a number of times now, it will teach you so, so much. The most important thing it will teach you, though, is that corruption in our political system is not new. But there are people in every stage of history, and perhaps now more than ever, who are determined to do something about it. So thank you to the two of you for doing something about it. And let's all join together in trying to make our wonderful country far less corrupt in the future. Thanks so much to everyone. Yeah, thanks everybody. Thanks. And uh, you will be getting a recording of this, which you can send to people who missed it or whatever. I, I think it'll hit your inboxes in a couple of hours. Yeah. So I, have the control to end this. And we're going to click end. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks very much. Thanks for Bye, coming. Good evening. Bye. Cheers.